Mahat Maria, welcome to First Up. It's Rapa, that is Wednesday, the 8th of February. Kornathan Rarari Aho. Coming up, the World Health Organization predicts that the final death toll from Turkey's devastating quake could top 30,000. We'll have the latest from the earthquake zone. 11 days on from Auckland's record breaking floods, we're in South Auckland where hundreds still need help. And Climate Change Minister and Green Party co leader James Shaw joins us as West Auckland residents have been flooded twice in as many years. And they ask who will buy their uninhabitable flooded homes? I'm just a little bit concerned that we're either not going to get insurance or it's going to be really, really high. The house is not worth anything to sell now. No one's going to want to buy a house that's been flooded twice. We welcome to First Up. I'm Nathan Rarity here. And yeah, as uh, you've been hearing uh, for the last day or so, more than 5,000 people are known to have died in southern Turkey and the north of Syria after a series of massive earthquakes. Rescue teams and local residents are racing to try and save people trapped in the rubble after thousands of buildings collapsed across both countries. The BBC's Richard Galpin has the latest. Almost 36 hours after the huge earthquake struck this region, survivors are still being pulled from the rubble of hundreds of collapsed buildings. This little girl was found in the Syrian town of Jandares. The cries for help from the many people still trapped can also be heard in the rubble-strewn streets of southeastern Turkey. Adding to the difficulty of the rescue operations is the cold weather and winter storms. On top of this, many people have nowhere to go to for shelter. Their homes have been destroyed. And fear of more aftershocks is also deterring many from returning to what remains of their houses. The World Health Organization is now appealing for rapid action by the international community. It's now a race against time. Every minute, every hour that passes, the chances of finding survivors alive diminishes. There are already 5,000 people confirmed dead. The World Health Organization has estimated up to 23 million people could potentially be affected by this disaster, including 5 million vulnerable people. We're sitting here in a cold and rain, just waiting for the rescuers to start digging here. I slept in the car, hoping that my children would get out of the building. I have seven children under the rubble. Offers of aid are coming in from around the world, including many charities and voluntary organisations. But one veteran British aid worker on his way to help says the dangers have not yet passed. I can expect this to go on for weeks if not a month that is going to be the challenge for the rescue efforts and also um, for the local population who every time they kind of galvanize themselves to go back to their houses there's another aftershock so people will become fixed in what will become camps of internally displaced persons so they'll need shelter 
they'll need water, at some point they'll need food, and the people who are being rescued will need medical support. Amongst the thousands of buildings which have been destroyed are businesses and schools and hospitals, as well as homes. This fire in the Turkish port of Iskenderun is thought to be another impact of the earthquake. All operations there have now come to a halt. Aid agencies have reported that the devastation is so widespread that it will take time to assess the damage and ascertain the true scale of the help needed. The weather is due to have an impact on those left without shelter, with overnight temperatures set to dip below freezing. BBC weather presenter Nick Miller says that the weather in the region doesn't get much worse than it is at the moment. Yes, clearly this situation is awful enough regardless of what the weather's doing, but the weather certainly isn't helping. When the earthquake hit, there was rain and snow around, it's turned drier, but the focus now is increasingly on how cold it is and how much colder it's going to become over the next several days. And that's, of course, going to impact rescuers and those without shelter or protection from the elements at the moment. And we know there are a lot of people in that situation. Let's just take a look at what's going on with the weather in this part of Turkey and Syria at the moment. Now, as I mentioned, we had some rain and some snow around uh, when the earthquake hit. That low pressure's cleared away, but our air mass chart there indicates the blues, and that is a large zone here where temperatures are well below average. And we're talking maybe up to 20 degrees Celsius below average. So if you take Gaziantep there, actually not that far below average by day. 10 degrees is the average temperature. We're talking highs of around 6 or 7 degrees, with increasingly a lot of dry weather around. Still the chance for a few showers. But look at these overnight temperatures. They're going to fall much further below freezing in the coming nights. Lighter winds. I know it's quite windy there at the moment. But if you're away from Gaziantep and towards the more rural and mountainous areas, we could well be seeing temperatures of minus 10 to minus 50 degrees Celsius overnight. Uh, it is winter and of course we would expect the natural weather pattern to deliver milder weather at times and colder spells. It just so happens that this cold spell is coming at the worst possible time. And we'll have more from the affected areas on Morning Report and throughout the day on RNZ National. Sure, many of you that uh, lived through the, the horror of uh, the earthquakes in the South Island uh, can relate to that as well and just the, the terrible time that they're going through there. Well, uh, we switch it to our neighbours from across the ditch now. Joining us from Australia is our correspondent, Pam Corkery. Morena, Pam, how are you? Morena, I'm good. I cried a river watching the telly last night. We are so lucky with well-built, you know, edifices. Yeah. It was just awful, yes. I'm fine apart from that. Yeah, and it's horrible, isn't it? Sometimes that, that red tape of building is, is a good thing that we are lucky uh, and fortunate to have. But look, um, so Chris Hipkins has had a, a busy yep. old uh, busy old time since becoming Prime Minister, made that flying visit to Canberra yesterday to meet Anthony Albanese. How did, how did that go? Look, he carried himself well. I was extremely proud of Chippy, which I can't stop saying, and no disrespect. <laughs> he and Annette King embracing was all over the telly. He also made Albanese look a wee bit old. Um, the big angle here in news reports is that the relationship must be seriously regarded because the meet with Albanese was on the same day that Parliament reopened for the year, so Albo had a big time ahead. 
Um, there were meetings with business roundtable people, the usual suspects, Fonterra, Bunnings, all that sort of thing. Um, and also then there was a big press conference where Chippy was hit with, you know, how much are you going to send to Turkey, that kind of thing. So I think he did it really, really well. And it just shows that there was a genuine friendship there, I think, by the end of it. Yep. Perfect. Um, yep. Tell me about this now. Uh, the COVID-19 vaccines, I see Australia being offered a fifth one of those. Do you think many of the locals will, will take up the offer, though? Well, very few are taking up the fourth, third or fourth um, vaccines, so I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's about 70% of the eligible population have had the third dose, but less than 50 have gone back for the fourth. It's a bit out of the blue because case levels here aren't chat-tastic. You know, the people will be for people, the booster will be for people over 65. It's Omicron exclusive. Um, you know, I just don't know where it's kind of come from at the same time where the ATAG, the authority here, is going to also, okay, MDMA for mental health. So I'm just going to go in and see what's offering to me. Yeah, well, fantastic. Take your fat yeah. boost in with you. That'll yeah. be good. I'll tell you what, after, after having COVID last year, I'll, 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 any one of those, I'll have them thank. Just get them in me. That's what I'll do. Absolutely. <laughs> and even though I had to dig really deep, we are having more than 2,500 cases a day and yeah. 150 deaths a week. So there's no mucking around. It's just it wasn't promoted. Yeah, that's a good point, uh, New Zealanders. Yeah, have a Google, have a look at our numbers as well. It ain't gone away. It hasn't gone away. There we go. Sorry. Mm. Hey, um, let's have a look at this too. Um, Australia will remove King Charles as the head of state within the next few years, possibly. There's a lot of comment around it. I mean, there's nothing official, but obviously um, Albanese has a, a, a cabinet minister in charge of, you know, becoming a republic in his current cabinet. He said nothing would happen around this election. But I think pulling out the, the king from being on a $5 note was a big kicking the Bajangas, really, because they've had the Queen there for all those years. No one says Bajangas these days. I love uh, the Bajangas. Yeah. <laughs> and the, I, I, I reckon with this government in and it being Charles, who no one cares about, that I know anyhow, so it's not scientific, I think it's, I would put money on a republic at the end of this term. And you're in Queensland as well, so there'll be calls for, what, King Wally Lewis? To, uh, to come back to be the, I guess, be the, the guy that they have. Exactly. Yeah. Or will it be Kingsland? It might, it might be. There you go. Yeah. Well, now, um, alcohol bans. So they are going to be reinstated in Alice Springs. Can you j- just explain to us why they're doing that? Because it's a disaster there. We talked about it, I think, last week that um, Indigenous people, especially young ones, majority Indigenous people have just gone on a drinking rampage to the point where if they were banned from anywhere, they've moved on to Mount Isa in Queensland. I mean, this is just so very sad. So we're not talking, last time we talked, it was about limitations to the Mm. amount of alcohol. This is bans. This is dry areas. And it's been done with real reluctance because it seems to put a slur on the Indigenous people. But this goes back 
decades, you know, of antisocial behaviour and complex issues because of neglect. So at the same time, they're getting like quarter of a million first pay up to start working on housing issues. I mean, they're, they're treated terribly up there. So to, to, and jobs, no jobs. You know, if you get a job, you, you will grab hold of it, you know, and, and hang on to it because you'll be the only one in that street. So it's, it's had to be done. Because yeah. the violence is out of control. It's heartbreaking. At the same time, there's a lot of understanding. 65% now approve, this is in the latest survey, but it's quite a good one, um, the voice for parliament. You know, that, that Indigenous people will have as part of the Constitution a voice. So when that referendum comes up this year, you know, it, it, there's no judgment around what's happening in Northern Territories. Yeah. Pam, thank you very much for your time this year's Out of Queensland. That is Pam Corkery. Uh, back home now, where floodwaters in Auckland have receded, uh, but there is still a sting in the tail. Yep, mosquitoes. Tamaki Makoto is humming with them since the floods, so we asked entomologist Rude Kleinpaster, is this normal? Judging from what I know about insects and invertebrates, if you get a lot of rain and there is a lot of pools of water stagnant lying around, mosquitoes will call that an opportunity. They will lay their eggs in that water or near that water and their little larvae will actually clean the water, which I think is pretty positive. But the numbers, of course, that you get in the end, they're all looking for blood. And seeing we are warm-blooded, those mosquitoes will come looking for us. In Australia, a boom in mosquito populations after the floods led to health warnings. In fact, until last month, authorities in South Australia were asking the public to be cautious after an increase in the case of mosquito-borne viruses. So, should we brace ourselves too? We are quite lucky in New Zealand that we do not have any species of mosquitoes that can cause serious dangers in the form of being a vector of human diseases. I mean, it's a different case in America and in Australia and places like that. But we in New Zealand, because of our good biosecurity system, we're still in very good order. The other positive thing I'd like to say about mosquitoes is they actually clean the water from bacteria that is stagnant in Auckland. So they're doing a reasonable job keeping it under control. And Rude says despite the rising mosquito numbers, it is best for the environment if humans learn to coexist with them. I don't think we need to get rid of those mosquitoes. These things are doing a fabulous job. Um, Apart from cleaning the water in which they live as larvae, the males who don't eat blood are very good pollinators in your garden. So basically, if you see this ecosystem develop in your ponds and in your pools and your puddles, you know, all we really need to do is donate one tiny droplet of our blood to fuel that system, that ecosystem and to make sure that it keeps going in a positive way. Pegs mm, not mine. So what about flies, Rude? I'm not too sure if the whole flooding episode is really making a hell of a difference in terms of fly numbers. Um, Flies are always more numerous in the summertime. And I think that's whether it's dry or whether it's wet. So I don't think they are terribly related for when you talk about house flies and blow flies and things like that. So it is business as usual for them. Now, when the flies arrive, I usually grab the uh, the fly spray, but Rude says it shouldn't be the first thing that you think of. Pest control is a tricky gig, 
it is really not that easy to do. It depends entirely on what you're trying to control or discourage from coming into your house. But there's a number of things you can do. You can use the old pesticides if you like. When it comes about when it comes to flies, the easiest thing is to open your window on the windy side of the house, not on the leeward side of the house. Because most flies don't like the wind. They shelter on the quiet side where you normally open your windows. It's little simple tricks like that that help you to keep your house free from flies. Okay, so mosquitoes are in abundance, but they are a health hazard and fly numbers are higher, but that's just because of the time of year that it is. What about ants? Why do you think ants would be a problem after a flood? I don't know. Maybe the ones that live in the soil are literally being flooded out and have to find another place to make a nest. Um, I don't really know if they are then that interested in coming inside and uh, be basically cleaning up the jam behind the stove. But that's another story. Ants, um, you know, I think, again, are more active in the warmer times of the year. And I don't believe that the floods have got much to do with that. So Rude says the insect population isn't bugging us any more than they did before the floods. I don't think that the floods are making things worse for human beings, apart from the fact that it's an absolute nuisance and an economic nuisance at that, that it destroyed so many houses and infrastructure. But in terms of insects, insects have been on this planet for, ooh, let's say 200 million years, and they have seen it all before. They have no problems with these things, and they will survive. And they can adapt to even the wettest conditions. So... I don't think it's going to be much worse than normal. And what about those mozzies? Is there a way that we can stop them biting? Well, Rude says that he has a rather permanent solution to fix that. In order to stop mosquitoes finding you, you can do one thing only, and it is very, very, very efficient. Just stop breathing. <gasps> Rude climb pasta. I feel like I'm in a World Cup final and I've just missed a shot at goal. I could have said that's a bit rude. But anyway, it's uh, 23 minutes past five. I'm Nathan Rarity here at First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, the floodwaters may have receded, but 11 days on, hundreds of affected people still need help. And Green co-leader James Shaw is with us. Mosquitoes are attracted to carbon dioxide, that's what he meant. This week on Trade Me, some fundraisers for Auckland flood relief and an opportunity to own an entire recording studio in Christchurch, yes. Uh, producer Jeremy Parkinson talked with Trade Me's Ruby Topzand who told him they've opened a kindness store which will raise money for the Red Cross to help with the relief effort. Yes, that's right. We have opened up our kindness store, our wonderful kindness store, uh, to get some money together and send some love, financial love, to the Red Cross Disaster Welfare Support Teams in New Zealand who have already done just incredible work giving that crucial support to those people and, and those communities impacted by severe flooding. And there is still so much work to be done. So if you pop on site, you will see it on our homepage, the Kindness Store. And if you click through, there are a few amounts that you can purchase. And that's a, there's $10, $20, $50 or $100. And 100% of that contribution goes straight to the Red Cross. And we are so pleased already and so grateful to everybody that's already helped out and encourage anybody that can to jump on site and get involved too. 
And the other end of the fundraising spectrum, uh, you are getting a lot of auctions at the moment raising money for uh, flood relief. This one stood out, as I'm sure it stood out on a lot of people's radar. It is an interestingly shaped radish. Tell us about this. It is. Gosh, New Zealand loves a phallic vegetable. There's something, if there's something that we've learned at Trade Me is that New Zealand just loves a naughty vegetable. So, yeah, yes, yet again, we've got a radish this time um, that is just so graphic and it is raising money for flooding victims as well. Currently sitting at $123.69, which is a pretty amazing amount for a questionable radish, but all for good cause. And yeah, the people, the uh, the potential buyers and the seller are having way too much fun in their Q&A too. So if you're up for it, it's a good listing to go and have a read through. Yeah, the comments are peak trade me, I have to say. So do get along. That That's in the interesting auction section. All of these are on the interesting auction section of the Trade Me homepage. So get along there and uh, have a look. Not Don't only just have a look. Make a bid on this interestingly yeah. shaped radish. Why not? Somebody, somebody very lucky is going to end up. Oh, awfully lucky! I couldn't tell you how lucky they are. And your property <laughs> listing, your property listing this week is uh, you know you get a, you get a few um, businesses uh, for sale and trade me. Obviously, this one's interesting because it's a, a quite a well known recording studio. Yeah, yeah. So. It, it, it is the South Island's largest recording studio, and it's located in Ferry Maid in, in Christchurch. And yeah, so the so the idea is that it's a recording studio that you can work in with a existing tenancy, and you can kind of have your cake and eat it too here, I suppose. You can record music if that's what you're interested in, or hire it out. And then it's also a great potential investment opportunity as well. So, but it's a, a beautiful um, building in itself as well, and. I'm sure lots of magic has happened in the studio and, and more to come. The listing, which outlines all of the, the technical whatnot details, finishes with, please, someone call by it. Does it come with all the stuff? So all the recording gear, does it come with the instruments? Because I see a piano and a drum kit there. I guess maybe not the instruments, but um, recording studio, you can't um, you, you can't have a recording studio without... Uh, the recording equipment, so I guess it all come, it's a business. So I guess some some many yeah. of those um, items that are in the f- photos uh, will be for sale as well. Yes, the listing description says it includes the fit out and chattels, but whether that includes those instruments, that might be worth giving the seller uh, Michael a phone to discuss, and I'm sure uh, perhaps um, something to discuss that they might be wanting to to get rid of as well. But yeah, it just it, it, the fit out in itself is, is so impressive. That was Trade Me's Ruby Topsand. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. It's just gone past half past five. This is the day of our life. We call the 8th of February. Happy birthday to you, Nick Nolte. Blowing out 82 candles today. Yeah, 82 of them. On this day in 1976, the classic film Taxi Driver came out, uh, directed by Martin Scorsese. You talking to me? Yeah, that uh, line wasn't actually in the original script at all, but an improvisation worked on between Scorsese and De Niro, and it was absolutely fantastic. 
What a line. It's a great way to... You talking to me? Ooh, that one. Gary Coleman uh, was born on this day in 1968. Also, uh, Paulie Foymana, born on 1969. Of course, uh, one of the uh, big hits of New Zealand of all time there. How bizarre. Also, a birthday on this day in 1828 for Jules Verne. Went on to write some books that people read. They were pretty good. And Chester F. Coleman, who? He was born on this day in 1906, so he was a physicist. This is the person who invented the Xerox copying machine. And in the tradition of great inventions, he took it to a company who just went, ha, get out of here. That was IBM. That kicked him out the doors in 1938. They went, no, no one's going to want that. Anyway, 1947, he finally found someone that would take it, the Halloid Company. They later renamed themselves to Xerox. They used the technology to create the first plain paper photocopier in 1959. You talking to me? Yeah. On this day in 1981, celebration by Cool and the Gang hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100. It held the top spot for two weeks and is still on high rotate in pretty much every uh, provincial nightclub and sports game in New Zealand. And on this day in 1960, the Hollywood Walk of Fame got its first star. Joanne Woodward was the very first star. Now, there are 2,500 stars and about 20 of them are added each year. You talking to me? I was. And with us now from the business team, it's Anand Zaki. Kia ora, how are you? Morena, very well, thank you. Now, I always hear about companies, oh, our costs have gone up and it's cutting into our profit margin, so we're going to pass it on. You know, we're going to have to pass this on. So when your company makes billions of dollars from uh, your oil, the price comes down, eh? <laughs> well, joking. you'd like to think so, right? <laughs> yeah. Tell us about oh, good the, one. Uh, good tell, one. Us, tell us about these struggling uh, oil companies. How have they feared? Oh, terribly, terribly. You know, oh. you know, absolutely terribly. You, you, my heart bleeds for them, I yeah. have to say. Um Look, uh, it's another day, another record oil company profit. Uh, BP is the one this time. Uh, they've reported record annual profit, uh, and they've scaled back plans to uh, reduce the amount of oil and gas it produces by 2030. Uh, so uh, scaling back on climate targets as well. Um, the company's profits uh, that's more than doubled to $27.7 billion US dollars uh, in 2022. Uh, that's after energy prices, uh, of course, skyrocketed after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And uh, this comes after other energy firms saw similar rises. Uh, Shell reported record earnings of nearly $40 billion US dollars last week. We also had uh, ExxonMobil. Uh, they posted a record $56 billion profit. Uh, and now BP, like I said, they've also scaled back their climate targets. They were... Initially, one of the first uh, oil and gas giants to announce an ambition to cut emissions to net zero by 2050, uh, and they previously promised that uh, emissions would be 35 to 40% lower by the end of this decade. But now they're targeting a, a 20 to 30% cut, uh, saying it needs to keep investing in oil and gas to meet current demand. And... Uh, the climate campaigners, Greenpeace, uh, they've come out strongly. They say BP's uh, new strategy 
uh, and I quote, uh, seems to have been strongly undermined by pressure from investors and governments to make even more dirty money out of oil and gas. Are they, are they trying to launch their own rocket? Like, well, surely that's what your profits are for. <laughs> don't, don't, don't you, in business, like, it's, you know, you reinvest it into your into your business. Reinvest into something, right? Well, yeah. you do wonder. Um, but, to uh, well, yeah. Let's hope, well, might, we might see a BP rocket by the end of this decade, eh? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> also, why are there pies like six bucks for $7 or six fifty? Anyway, um, thank you uh, very much for that. And Anzaki there, you can hear more from the business team on the Morning Report this morning at 10.27. Uh, if we go to your international money markets now, your New Zealand dollar is buying the following 62.9 US cents, 91.06 Australian cents. 58.81 euro cents, 52.5 British pence, 4.271 and 82.93 Japanese yen. While well, a South Auckland community support hub is still seeing hundreds of affected locals coming through its doors. That's 11 days after the initial flooding. The converted gymnasium is the only hub in Auckland to open 24 hours, providing around-the-clock support for displaced or affected locals. Reporter Leonard Powell visited Mangere to speak to those involved with the emergency response. On a sunny day in Mangere, a steady stream of people enter the Moana Nui Akiwa Pool and Leisure Centre on Mascot Ave. Some go straight through to the pools or gym, while others take a left into the basketball courts, which have been converted into the Mangere Community Emergency Hub. Between volunteers, workers and walk-ins, there's well over 100 people in the building. I meet Harriet Paunga, the Interim Pacific Health Northern Regional Leader under Te Whatu Ora. So we have here uh, civil defence providing accommodation. We've got Mapumaya who provide elderly and disability services as well as Vakatautua and other Pacifica providers. We've also got Whana Ora. Whana Ora has been with us as well since the beginning providing food packs as well as there's a doctor here and a nurse who does medical checks also can prescribe prescriptions if you've lost for emergency supplies. We know that nearly all the streets have been affected with power etc so there's global power here and Mercury to try and support which has access to all of the different power agencies. Victim support, we've got MSD here, we've also got insurances here to support people who have you know, insurance to try and make sure that their claims are completed correctly and easily. We've got animal welfare and Mooma as well are here for Nuaola, which helps with psychological and mental health support. So there's supports for everybody here. Local emergency accommodation has been provided for two and a half thousand people whose homes are uninhabitable, while nearly five thousand food packs have been given out, feeding more than ten thousand individuals. Donations are still being accepted, with towels being the most sought-after item. Towels, towels, beddings and men's clothing. Sad to say, women's clothing is piling up. It really represents our bad shopping habits. But um, big men's clothing, but towels and linen are the ones that are normally, it just goes, and that, that's the kind of stuff that's really in need here. Harriet introduces me to Sai Lawrence a volunteer whose house has been yellow-stickered. Our house got flooded as well. I think it's good to come down here and get involved in this so that kind of helped me feel better about my situation as well. We've seen a lot of people come through and get the things that they need. 
and a lot of people have been dropping off as well all the way from Karaka to up Whangarei as well. It's been awesome. It's been good to work with people who have a great love for their community. So that, that's the reason why we're here. We love our community and we want to help out as much as we can. Across the hall is local councillor Alf Filipina. He says the centre could stay open indefinitely. Reassessing every day. Uh, and we have to reassess every day. The emergency declaration that was extended finishes on Friday. Now that doesn't mean that because it finishes on Friday we have to stop. The community is going to dictate and that's going to be in consultation with all our providers and, and our government agencies who are here. But thank you so much for those that have donated to, uh, already. It's just, it's just awesome that it goes out to our community. As I leave the building, I meet Deputy Chair of the local board, Harry Fatu Toliafor. He's urging people not to be shy and turn up if they need help. Yeah, look, um, we really try to strive to make this an inclusive place. Eh? If you're whakama or you're shy, now is not the time to be shy. Now is the time to survive. So we warmly like to encourage everybody to come, no matter how great or small your need is. We're here to, to assist you and ensure that you're able to get through this situation. 19 to 6, Nathan Rarity here at First Up on RNZ National. Still two cam residents of the Auckland suburb of Swanson fear what will become of their flooded homes if they can't sell them. And co-leader of the Greens, James Shaw, joins us live. The professionals of Morning Report are with you after 6. It's uh, Corin Dan setting the table for you today. Kia ora, sir. How are you? Atamara and Nathan. Uh, good morning, everybody. Yeah, busy political show this morning. We've got uh, Chris Hipkins, the Prime Minister, on. We'll get updates from him on uh, New Zealand's response to the quake in Turkey. Also, see if we can find out more about this uh, story developing overnight about a New Zealand pilot taken hostage uh, in West Papua. Mm. Uh, we'll also have Chris uh, Christopher Luxon on the programme as well for his uh, weekly catch-up issues around co-governance uh, and the wash-up from Waitangi uh, likely to dominate there as well. We'll also be across uh, the cleanup that is continuing uh, for Aucklanders and the concern that uh, some councillors are expressing about uh, how long and how big that is going uh, to be. So quite a bit to get across this morning. Uh, looking forward to it. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, look, for some West Auckland residents, last month's floods weren't the first time their homes had been affected by an extreme weather event. So in August 2021, several properties in Swanson were badly damaged when heavy rains uh, caused two streams to burst their banks. Back then, they were told, hey, don't worry, it's a one in 100 year event. But given what happened on the night of January 27th, they're scared that their insurance premiums are now going to skyrocket and that they may never be able to sell their properties. Matthew Tunison went to meet some of those impacted. On Birdwood Road near the intersection with Waimoko Glen, Karen Andrews is on hold with the insurance company in her muddy kitchen. She only recently moved back in after completing extensive repairs following the 2021 flood. It seemed to be okay and then it rose really quickly to the point of, yeah, um, probably within half an hour we were packed and out, it raised, it just rose that fast. Dangerously fast? <laughs> Dangerously fast. Yeah, so you were worried for your safety as, as well as your property? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. It was like, if, if we hadn't been keeping an eye on it constantly, mm. yeah, we would have been stuck wow. if it hadn't been in the middle of the day. And you've been yellow-stickered, is that right? Yes. Remind me what that means. That means that there is um, damage to the property, yeah, we shouldn't live here. 
can you live here in the foreseeable? Or? Currently us, our, yeah. our situation, we don't have any issues with um, electrical or anything like that, so yeah. we can, we're not, we're just kind of spending time here through the day and that because last time we got looted quite a few times so our anger this time is the lack of response from the last flood yeah. the lack of really any cleaning in the, in the stream any clearing they did send some guys over they dragged the trees out of the stream chopped them up and just left them on the bank so that's all got so picked up again with this one was that the council yes yeah. So is that who your anger is directed at? Yes. Yeah. We want them to raise the house. At least raise the house or buy us out. Do you feel like you can no longer live here safely? Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. And uh, it's a gorgeous place. You imagine you don't want to leave the property though. Oh look, we we love it here. We've lived yeah. here twenty years, yeah. you know. Um we do, we love it here, but um it's not sustainable to every time it rains to be freaking out that you're gonna flood. Next I head down Wymorkle Glen where I meet Tom White outside his home at the end of the cul-de-sac. Tom and his partner moved into this property just six days before the flood. He tells me they were assured by both Auckland Council and insurers that it wasn't at risk of flooding, despite what happened in 2021. Some of the heaviest rain I've ever seen came down to the point where the pool was overflowing, so I had to sort of empty some of the waste from that. Then the water started coming down even heavier. It started coming in the... Uh, in the window sills actually mm. and then I looked up and the water was teetering on the fence, fence line it held for about 45 minutes mm. then it uh, breached the bank came up over the deck started coming in the house about an inch by that point mm. then I sort of thought okay well I've got to get the cars out from the garage mm. opened the garage and a three foot wave came down from the end of this driveway here and just came through the whole the whole house in a wave. like it was like a you know, if you go to the beach and you get a, a fairly fairly big size wave, yeah, it came right down up the driveway, Jeez. up into the garage. By this stage, it was probably about chest height on the, in the, the bottom of the driveway, so I couldn't get the cars out. We only had enough time to grab pretty much what we could carry, and the dog swam behind us. So, yeah, it was. you could see the water line in the house. So it was about a, you know, close to a metre of water so, in the house. So then where did you guys go? The neighbours here. Yeah. I mean, that's one silver lining from this whole thing. We got to meet all the neighbours. <laughs> the community is great. That yeah. was one of the reasons we were told and yeah. what, what we tracked it to this place. The neighbours up the road here, who happen to work in the same industry I work in, mm. um, yeah, they let, they let us stay in their camper van for the night because we were, we were blocked in here. We couldn't get out because the top of the road was chest deep and this end was sort of mid-chest deep. Oh. Oh. And so we stayed there for the night and waited for the water to drop. So I guess emergency responders couldn't have even got in here. Not really, no. But I've got to hear a bit more of the backstory around the problems they're facing with the council. Yeah. You know, in, in that space of time, there's been a massive developments all around, top of the hill there, and the main off main Swanson Road there. You know, there's anywhere between five or six hundred homes, all with the same wastewater going into these two little streams. I feel for this lady down the end here, actually. Yeah. Her house was pretty much chest deep, and you see the two little streams they confluence at the bottom end of her um, her her property, and she's. She's been really struggling. Is this your first time? Yeah, it is. Yeah, our first time. We just the worst thing is, is we this last 12 months, we've had my my partner's from Ireland. Her mum's been really poorly. We had to go over to the island to get her into the hospital. Came back here. My father passed away. The house we bought off the plans here. The um, builders went into receivership. It was two years delay. We got out of that contract with the skin of our teeth. We bought this place. Yeah. 
and six days later we were underwater. So yeah, it's been a bit of a sort of um, tough few days. Stupid question, but how, how are you feeling? Well, the other thing is my partner's almost 20 weeks pregnant, so my main priority at the moment is trying to keep her with as little stress as possible, uh, but we're sort of capping downstairs in the, my mother's basement at the moment. To be honest, it's a bit overwhelming. Next door, I meet Graham Beaufoy as he cleans the mud and debris from his home. If you have a look on the shed, over there yeah. you see an orange mark on the side, or an orange line. Yes. That was uh, flood in 21. That was 21? Yeah, and above it is another there's a black line. No. That's this one. So that's two metres, isn't it? Yeah, at least two metres in, in, in the back section, yeah. Crikey, so just talk us, were you home that, that no, night? No, we had gone shopping at Sylvia Park and our special needs son was home and um, he sent me a, a text saying house flooding so I had a look on because I've got cameras here so I had a look and it was the water was just below the floor of the shed so we went into panic mode. So you mode. could look on the phone and see the... I could look on the phone and see it coming up, yeah and then, yeah. And then we must have been probably half an hour from home and we lost the internet yeah. that's when I knew it was inside the house because yeah. they've taken out the power and your son does he is he okay does he have mobility issues or no are you worried it's, for him it's an intelligence issue he has but um he stood out the front there he had two dogs with him he was crying and thankfully there's a um a guy from just down the road here he took him down to some friend's place for us to, him to look after oh. yeah all the furniture was ruined we had a new lounge suite that was ruined. Um, all the fridges, the freezers, the dishwasher, um, all of those gone, all full of water. In fact, if you've been here on Saturday, there was probably 15 or so fridge freezers out the front. <laughs> An insurance? So yeah. from the first one last year, on oh, yeah. 2021 I mean, Yeah. did you have insurance then and then yeah, did your premiums then. then go up? The premium went up slightly, but the excess didn't, which was really good. Okay. So, you know, the insurance company has been really good about it. Great. Um, I'm just a little bit concerned that after this one, um, we're either not going to get insurance or it's going to be really, really high. I mean, did you know that this place was prone to flooding? No. H how long have you been here? Well, for? we've been here 28 years, and 26 of those years have been perfectly fine. Well, the 2021 flood was supposed to be 1 in 100 years, right? Yeah, and this one's supposed to be 1 in 200, so does that mean next year we're having a 1 in 300, you know? Does it just go on and on? Yeah, yeah. Whether we want it, we can get, like, the, the house is not worth anything to sell now. No one's going to want to buy a house that's been flooded twice. And I mean, people want, people like to have that option, right? Yeah, they do. So, how are you feeling, Graham? In all honesty, like shit. Yeah, now joining us for our weekly chat is the Greens co-leader, James Shaw. James, thanks for joining us. I know you've been listening there uh, too, Graham. Lots of Aucklanders are going to be in a similar position. What what do you think should happen to their homes if they're uninhabitable and, and nobody wants to buy them? Well, if their homes are uninhabitable and nobody wants to buy them, then insurance should give them a full uh, a full payout for the full value of the of the property, uh, and you know that obviously creates uh, options for people. I have to say, my heart you know goes out to the people who uh, you know were covered in that in that package, um, particularly you know that in that last segment, you know talking about um, the the man with his son. There will be a lot of people who 
uh, have disabilities who are particularly vulnerable to flood events like this uh, as well. Mm. Uh, and of course, those sort of stories are replicated all over Auckland at the moment as well. So it, it is a it is a tragedy, and we do have to make sure that people are you know got the ability to cope with future events. I know, yeah, I mean, I know you're saying they should get a full payout, but I think most people suspect when they've ever dealt with insurance companies, gee, they f- try and find ways that you're not going to get a full payout there. So, because um, I, I think a lot of them won't be able to afford to buy elsewhere if they don't get an insurance payout, you know, the, the, the proper amount there. Is there is there something that, that a government can do in this case, or is this very much this is private enterprise? No, there, there's always something that governments can do. Uh, and, you know, we do have an emergency response uh, system, which I have to say at the moment is being quite well exercised. There are six of the 14 regions of the country are currently in disaster recovery. Uh, so you've got Auckland, but then you've also got um, Tairawhiti, Buller, um, uh, Nelson, um, Waikato and others have got disaster recovery from other flood events as well. And so we are you know, getting, sadly, very well practiced uh, at this and making sure that people have the support that they need. But what's really important is, you know, whilst we've got to have this immediate uh, disaster recovery and, and response, um, we do actually need to make sure that our homes and our towns and our cities and our communities uh, adapt to these uh, kind of extreme weather events in the future because we will be seeing more events like this rather than less. And, and I can imagine, though, people going, yeah, but how do we pay for it? How, how, how do you, I mean, is, is there tax that can be done here or rearrangement? I mean, I guess maybe say goodbye to a merger of a broadcasting company. <laughs> well, well, it is a, it is a, I mean, that's a, frankly, an extremely minor cost compared to the scale of what we're talking about. I mean, we're mm. literally talking about tens of thousands of homes and commercial properties and government properties and local authorities and so on around the country. Um, and that is actually a, a central feature of the upcoming uh, adaptation bill is how we how we finance this, uh, you know, adaptive transition that we've got. Um, but it, it, it's already expensive. I mean, we're paying for this through disaster recovery and response. I think it would be lower cost for us to build more resilient uh, homes and towns and cities and to ensure that when these flood events occur in the future, uh, that they cause less damage, or you know, which of course then equates to less cost. Yeah, um, you were at Waitangi uh, across the weekend. How was that for you? And uh, what, what did you think were the main issues that were talked about, or did you think there was anything that was missed? Well, for me, uh, Waitangi is the highlight of my political year. I mean, I I, um, I I love the fact that we get together for almost a week. You know, we kind of move large um, portions of the capital north. Uh, and take a moment away from the kind of biffo in Wellington uh, to sort of reflect on who we are as a country and where we've come from and where we're going. Um, and, and it's not until after Waitangi Day that Parliament resumes. And I think that's actually quite an important uh, ritual and process for us for us to go through. So I appreciated that. Um, and, you know, I, I think there was a bit of an added frisson. Obviously, there's a new Prime Minister um, and uh, wanting to set out his stall. Um, and there is this kind of undercurrent uh, of kind of racism and nastiness around some of the co-governance issues uh, that have been highlighted. And, and so, you know, there was a bit of tension around that, which I expect, given that it's an election year, will probably find its way into the public discourse uh, during the course of the year. And I think we need to do everything we can as a country to make sure that we don't go down a particularly dark path there.
Mm. James, thank you so much uh, for being here with us this morning. There he is, uh, Green's co-leader, James Shaw. Uh, look, some of your feedbacks coming this morning. Mike in Ahurere, yeah, <laughs> I may have misheard, and I, and if I did, I apologise, but I thought I heard you say the founder of Xerox was Chester Coleman. His name is Jester Carlson. Do you know what? He... Yeah, you're right. It is, ge- <laughs> but I was my eyes were looking at it. It's Gary Coleman's birthday as well, so that's my fault there. There we go. Yes, you you are correct there. And uh, we go to uh, Waiheke here, where uh, Wa- Waiohiki, sorry, uh, where Denny's is quoted James K. Baxter. This is about uh, something for sale on Trade Me phallic vegetables. New Zealanders have always had a thing for that. Majestic as the tree of life. Look, Laura, would that be a fit? The Bastard has a flange on it. That's James K. Baxter, the ballad of Calvary Street. Thank you very much uh, for that, for just adding a little bit of class to the end of the show uh, this morning. Morning Report is next with Guyon and Corin. From all of us here at First Up, please have yourselves a wonderful day. Download the podcast. Just listen to us again. Honestly, it's even better the second time around. We'll be back in your ears up all morning.